Welcome to Life Examined on KCRW. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Several years ago, British economist Norena Hertz began to notice something different. More and more of her students said they felt lonely. Even more surprising was the discovery that students were actually losing their ability to interact face-to-face and were having trouble reading others' facial expressions. Though loneliness is hardly a new phenomena, Hertz's research has exposed how prevalent it is in our modern lives. A state of perpetual loneliness can be as bad for your health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. In her latest book, The Lonely Century, Coming Together in a World That's Pulling Apart, Norena Hertz says feeling isolated isn't about having no friends, it's about not being seen. And those who feel disconnected from the world are more likely to become hostile to others and more susceptible towards extremist politics. So what's the solution for greater connectivity? Have we swapped modern conveniences for community? Hertz says that one thing we can all do is to practice greater human connection, even if it's on a micro level. Narina Hertz has been an honorary professor at University College London since 2014, and she joins me now. Welcome to Life Examined. Thank you for having me, Jonathan. So when did you first begin to really see loneliness present itself in front of you? I know you teach a lot, uh, you live in London, but, but tell me when you really started to first notice it. So it was about three and a half years ago, I noticed that more and more students were coming into my office and in office hours confiding in me that they felt lonely and isolated. And this was a new phenomenon. I'd been teaching at university for over 15 years But I hadn't seen this body of students feeling this way, which got me thinking something's going on here. Loneliness is increasingly a feeling that's being expressed and and that I was witnessing as well in terms of when I sent my students group assignments, I was seeing that increasing numbers of them were finding it hard to interact effectively face-to-face in person because because they were spending so much time on their screens and and really finding face-to-face in-person interaction challenging. And I raised this with a colleague, somebody who runs one of the US's most prestigious universities, and he said to me, we're seeing exactly the same thing here. In fact, here it's so bad. We're having to run remedial how to read a face in real life mm. classes for our incoming students because they really in a room, can't read um, people's expressions, which was quite astounding. Mm, That's really interesting. And of course, here we are uh, amid a pandemic. I know in London, there's been just an incredible lockdown there, so hard to see anybody. But you trace this back before the pandemic as something that was kind of leading us up to this point. So how far do you kind of take this argument? So we really had built a lonely world Mm way before the pandemic struck. Even before the pandemic, one in five Americans said that they felt lonely always or often. Um, One in five millennials said that they didn't have a single friend, which is Mm. quite quite a figure. And this this is before the pandemic. The pandemic has inevitably made this significantly worse. And the most recent data suggests that as many as 50% of Americans currently feel lonely, but loneliness was already a problem, a problem affecting our health, affecting our wealth, and even, as I discovered, affecting who it is we vote for. 
Mm, yeah, and you talk about neoliberalism as a really important mover here. This was going back to the 1980s. Can you open up that argument a little bit more? Yes, so we really see a rise in loneliness really beginning around the 1980s. And that, of course, is when Ronald Reagan and Margaret Thatcher put in place a particular form of capitalism that we call neoliberalism, a dog-eat-dog, greed-is-good form of capitalism right. that really has dominated and spread across the world, indeed, um, ever since then. Um, so, you know, not only confined to Republican politics, but moving then into Clinton third-way politics as well. So it became this dominant form of capitalism. And why it engendered greater loneliness, I argue, is for a number of reasons. First, because it presided over an era of ever-growing wealth and income gaps and asymmetries. And it's not that the rich can't be lonely, they also can be. But we do know that if you're on a low income or if you're unemployed, you are more likely to be lonely. Um, but it also created a sense for considerable numbers of people that they had been forsaken, forgotten, mm. that they were invisible, unseen. And loneliness isn't just about feeling that you're disconnected from your friends and family and uncared for by them. It's also about feeling disconnected from your fellow citizens or indeed from your government or your employer, about feeling unseen or invisible. And so neoliberalism playing a role there. And then also importantly, playing a role in today's loneliness crisis because of what we might think of as a neoliberal capitalist mindset in which we came to see ourselves as competitors, not collaborators, as hustlers, not helpers, where we came to valorize as a society qualities like hyper-competitiveness at the expense of qualities like caring for each other and compassion, a time in which we became increasingly individualistic. And Jonathan, you even see this in uh, pop song lyrics. Right which since the 1980s, uh, we see words like we, us, and our increasingly supplanted by words like I, me, and my. So a self-interested, self-focused world, uh, world and mindset was inevitably, I argue, going to beget a lonely one. Isn't that interesting? I, I have noticed that change in pop culture. And I think there's something also in the parenting philosophy that we saw out of the 80s or 90s, a certain emphasis on the uniqueness of every child, which is, of course, a beautiful thing. We want everybody to blossom into their unique being. But I think it's, again, this emphasis on the individual less so than on the community. Would you agree with that? That's that's a fascinating insight, Jonathan, and actually tallies with research that I did before I wrote The Lonely Century on what I call Generation K, today's 15 to 25-year-olds. And when I gave them an open-ended question which asked for one word to describe themselves, unique was the word <laughs> that they were most likely to choose. And yes, you know, if you see yourself as um, an individual, of course that has a whole host of pluses, that mindset, but it also can come at the expense of a sense of being part of a collective and part of a community. 
Right. There's been increasing medical evidence too on on this the, the detrimental uh, effects of loneliness, and you talk about this almost as a public health crisis. Can you can you go a little bit into the science for us and explain that? Yes, when we think about loneliness, we often do think about the mental health implications, and there are serious mental health implications. Mm -hmm. We know that there's a link between increased feelings of loneliness and increased rates of depression, anxiety, and even, unfortunately, suicide. And in fact, a worrying thing that we're witnessing right now off the back of months of enforced periods of isolation um, is a rise in suicide rates across um, much of the globe. But loneliness is also a something that affects our physical health, and this is less discussed. And why why it does so is because essentially we're creatures of togetherness. We are hardwired to connect. We're not designed to feel lonely. In fact, we're designed not to do something when we feel lonely, to react. Um, so what happens when, we're, when we feel lonely is essentially we go into fight or flight mode. Our blood pressure goes up, our levels of cortisol, our stress levels in our body go up, our pulse goes up, our pulse rate goes up. All of these signaling to our body, don't stay alone, go and find your tribe, mm. go and find people to hunt and gather with. You know, being lonely is not your natural state. The trouble is that in contemporary life, many of us remain in this state of loneliness for days or weeks or months. And that protracted state of loneliness means that we're in a protracted state of fight or flight high alert, which is very bad for our health. Um, if you're chronically lonely, you have a 29% higher chance of getting heart disease, a 32% chance of getting a stroke, you're 64% more likely to get dementia. And in fact, you're 30% more likely to die prematurely. Loneliness is as bad for our health as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. And then there's this question, I think, for young people, and it kind of goes back to what you said in the beginning of our conversation, the, the leader of a major university having to teach uh, students how to read faces. Uh, it, it makes me fear that... We're raising a generation that's just not going to be as comfortable with in-person um, conversations or relationships. Do you think that's true? Well, even um, even amongst younger children, even before the pandemic, nursery school teachers were um, reporting that they were seeing increasing numbers of children coming to school lacking the most basic interpersonal and social skills both because their parents were spending so much time on their devices right, right. and so not imparting kind of traditional face-to-face -face, um, interaction skills with them and also because the kids were spending so much time on their screens themselves. And there was actually fascinating research done where they took a group of children, 10-year-olds, away for a kind of digital-free, just five-day camp and they showed them before they went away they showed them these pictures of people's faces the kind of pictures you show um, kids when you're trying to determine how good they are at being able to determine whether someone's smiling or mm -hmm. frowning those kind of things and just with five days of their screens so practicing being back face to face the good news was they were significantly better 
at being able to register and understand and make sense of um, these facial expressions. So I think it is a problem, but it's a problem that if we are determined to do something about, I think we can remedy. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I want to go back now to some of the larger arguments here, specifically about how we have created this, this, the structural economics here have changed the world we live in and have therefore perhaps created this sense of loneliness. I, I remember seeing this as I was traveling through different parts of the globe, uh, particularly in developing countries, uh, areas of Africa or Nepal, where urbanization was forcing villagers, tribal members, to come into these big cities, live very poorly on the outskirts, and, and ultimately it seemed to create this incredible dislocation for the way they live their lives. It's probably something that's happening in the U.S. as well. As we're seeing these cities grow, places like Houston, for example, are just growing so quickly. There has to be something in there that is that is creating this pandemic of loneliness as well. What what does the research say about this? For sure, I have a whole chapter that looks at the loneliness of the city and you know, of course people can be lonely in rural communities too, but sure. there is a distinct nature of loneliness within the city. It's partly because a matter of scale that there are just so many people around you that it's easy to have that phenomenon of feeling very lonely in a crowd when people are rushing by you, not even looking at you. Um, in the US, of course, so many cities built primarily for cars mm -hmm. rather than people. So you might not even have people physically walking by you um, because they're just driving by you. So um, in that sense of kind of not being able to look people in the eyes, I think is a big deal. That the pace of cities is not conducive to people you know, saying hello to you when they do pass you by or smiling. In fact, the richer a city, um, the faster people walk in a city, which I find hmm. a fascinating yeah. stat. And the denser a city, the less civil to each other their citizens tend to be. Um, but cities also are playing a role because and this isn't only in cities but but we see this particularly perhaps in cities where what i think of as the infrastructure of community has been seriously depleted really ever since 2008 and the financial crisis so by which i mean public libraries public parks um youth centers community centers elderly daycare centers public spaces where people can actually come together. Um, increasingly underfunded in the United States, public libraries have seen a 40% reduction in federal funding since 2008. And people need physical spaces if they are to come together and be together, but also um, if they are to learn how to be together. Because it's in these public spaces that in many ways we learn the skills that underpin what we might think of as inclusive democracy, where we learn how to get on with people, different people to us, where we learn how to be polite and civil and reciprocal. Yeah, uh, it's interesting. You describe it almost like it's a muscle that has to be used, something that has to be practiced. Even if it's in us, this is something that we need to work at, right? Yes, we need to practice inclusive democracy. We need to practice community. 
It's in New York City, I believe, that I think one of the most interesting stories of your book uh, takes place. Uh, it, it describes how you went about something called renting a friend, a, a burgeoning business, I take it. Can you can you explain a little bit about this? It highlights something that I think is is pretty interesting. Yes. So I had in my research discovered that, yes, you can rent friends. And when I was in New York, I rented Brittany. Uh, Brittany was a 23-year-old Ivy League grad. Um, I was a bit worried before I met up with her, you know, not knowing if this was something untoward and mm -hmm. if friend was covert speak for something else, but it but it wasn't. And I, <laughs> I met her at a cafe in downtown Manhattan. Um, we drank matcha tea together. We went to McNally's, one of my favorite bookstores in downtown Manhattan, and looked at books. We went into a clothes shop and tried on sunglasses and hats. And it was it was kind of like, obviously not being with an old friend, but kind of like being with a new friend, mm. somebody who you just clicked with and was having fun with. I mean, of course, it was only afterwards that I thought, yeah, no wonder it felt really good. She was laughing at all my jokes. Of course she was. <laughs> um, sure. but, it, but it was strange when um, standing in Urban Outfitters, she turns around to me and says, Time's up. That'll be $120, mm. wow. please. <laughs> but, but I think, Jonathan, it speaks to a, um, a broader phenomenon. First of all, I think what was really interesting about this was that when I asked her who her clients were, she said typically 30 to 40-year-old professionals, women as well as men, um, people who worked in finance, tech, consulting, had moved to the city, again, speaking to the loneliness of the city, um, didn't have support systems, didn't have friends there, and just wanted someone to go and hang out with, go to, and have a coffee with, go to a movie with, which is, you know, it's, it's, it's a sad state of affairs that people are having to buy friendship. But on the other hand, it also alerted me to what I came to call the loneliness economy, mm -hmm. an entire economy that has sprung up and that had sprung up even before the pandemic to help alleviate people's sense of loneliness and deliver friendship, connection, and even at times community. And I found it really fascinating that the market had seen an opportunity here and was stepping in mm. um, in this way, whether it was through renting a friend or you can pay to be cuddled. In Los Angeles, right. I paid to be cuddled. <laughs> um, or, um, or, you know, all through... Um, Technology, of course, mm -hmm. through things like social robots, um, which is um, you know, already before the pandemic was a growing sector. In Japan, for example, elderly women will often knit bonnets for their robot carers right. who they've become so attached to. Yeah. Yeah. And there's, I mean, if I have this right, there's also examples, I think, in China, you can rent a wife uh, in Japan. I've heard of stories of renting a family. I mean, this is yes. this is all over the world. Yes, um, and the website actually has over where I found Brittany had over six hundred twenty thousand friends to rent all across the world. But loneliness is a global phenomenon. That's the um, fascinating thing. It's not exclusively a Western phenomenon, although the more individualistic a society is the more likely its citizens are to feel lonely. And I think one thing about the story that, that really catches my attention is the fact that you said that the clientele 
were people in their 30s and 40s because mm -hmm. automatically i think we we tend to imagine lonely people as older people that maybe have lost lost a partner or or isolated in, in a big house or a small space whatever it is but these were people kind of in the in the prime of their lives in these powerful careers and yet the one thing they couldn't have was meaningful social interaction, which is profoundly sad. Yes, and in fact, the young are the loneliest generation. So, um, you know, if we're talking about, in fact, even younger than those 30 to 40 year olds, uh, if we're talking about 18 to 24 year olds, for example, they're actually the loneliest and initially surprising. I was going to say, can you can you just tell us a little bit more about the demographics of loneliness, what, what you've learned doing this research? Yes. So we know that the young are the loneliest. We also know that uh, people on low income and the unemployed are disproportionately lonely. Uh, we know, too, that during the pandemic, three groups have become even lonelier or especially lonelier everyone's become lonelier with 50 percent roughly of americans at present lonely but um but certain groups have become disproportionately even lonelier and that's the young again um people on low income again and also women hmm. women really yes why is yes. that yes so i think uh unpacking it a few reasons are at play first of all unfortunately we've seen a rise in domestic abuse during mm -hmm. the pandemic. And there's nothing lonelier than being in an abusive relationship, of course. But also because this pandemic has been a gendered pandemic in terms of the economic um, ramifications. More women are losing their jobs. Um, more women are out of work. And we know that unemployment and loss of income and low income is associated with um, loneliness. And um, and also because loneliness is about feeling powerless, unseen, unheard. And the other thing we've learned through this pandemic is that women have typically at home been the ones who've had to carry the brunt of dealing with childcare and housework as alongside their jobs. And that inevitably can make you feel powerless, unseen, unheard. Certainly. And I think it's almost counterintuitive because we tend to generalize women as more social than men, more <laughs> willing to create community, to be sociable, to reach out. But uh, a pandemic can, I guess, turn all that upside down. Yes. And the informal support networks that um, many women have built up um, in the pre-pandemic life, they're unable to use and rely upon, you know, in a world where you can't see your parents and have the grandkids help, have the grandparents help out or um, meet up with your female friends mm -hmm. um, to unload. Yeah. Was there any research about uh, people of color or immigrants that, that have been kind of swept up in this too? Yes, I did look at race and loneliness in my research. And I think there's kind of two particularly interesting findings. One is that in the workplace, um, where, again, um, loneliness is very pervasive in the workplace, 40% of US office workers feel lonely at work. But we did see, we do see greater levels of loneliness amongst um, non-whites in the workplace. 
um, partly to do with racism um, at work and experiences of um, racism, sure. but also partly to do with um, with kind of jobs with with jobs and um, greater proportions of people um, of color in jobs where they may feel that they have less voice and less power. Um, I think the other thing around race that is interesting to note is actually um, around white working class men. Mm -hmm. So a group who feel perhaps newly lonely um, and, and so feeling lonely in the sense that this is a group that historically might not have felt lonely, um, might have felt that they had the brotherhood of the workplace and um, a standing and a status within their community, but feeling today that they are lacking that. And that craving for being seen on their part, of course, linked to, I argue, the rise of right-wing populism, who we've seen across the globe, you know, leaders who speak to, explicitly speak to this sense of forsakenness that many of these white working class voters feel. Yeah, you, you make some really fascinating arguments in this book about the rise of populism, the connection to loneliness. And um, I wonder if there's just anything else you'd like to add to that, because one thing I know your book does so well is is it expands our notion of loneliness beyond just the idea of kind of uh, feeling lonely in your room and having no one to talk to, but how we feel also disconnected from governments, from systems around us as well. Yes, for me, loneliness is political, economic, as well as personal. Mm -hmm. um, it's drivers, um, you know, are many. But loneliness is about feeling disconnected, whether it is from those closest to or from these bigger institutions, about feeling um, uncared for, whether it is by those around you or by your employer or the state. Yeah. Yes. Well, just to keep on the economics here, because uh, you talk about the rise of just uh, the rise of contactless companies um, and mm. how it's something we've come to rely on, especially in the pandemic, DoorDash, things like mm. that. But this was something that was present before. And I think I had my mind was that this was kind of innocuous. It was a time saving mechanism in a busy world. You see it, though, as another route in loneliness. Can you expand upon that? I think historically we've taken for granted what we might call micro exchanges, mm. the micro connections we had in our old lives, when we could go into a bookstore and browse and speak to the bookseller, when we could go into a cafe and chat to the server. Um, those little exchanges that we have in our day-to-day -day life. When we go into, our, into a yoga studio and um, kind of chat to, ver to uh, fellow students and the teacher. Those micro exchanges um, that we had in our old lives um, actually are essential in making us feel connected, connected to each other, um, to feel anchored in our neighborhoods and also um, actually feel happier mm. as well. And even before the pandemic, we were seeing a rise in what I call contactless living. So more people were staying in and ordering their food on DoorDash or ordering their groceries online or doing a spin class on Peloton. 
But of course, the pandemic has massively accelerated that. And the danger is that post-pandemic, we decide to choose convenience over community, not recognising that actually it's a trade-off we are thereby making. Because not only through those interactions do we feel those in-person interactions in our stores and in our cafes, in our yoga studios, do we feel more connected to each other? But again, it's another opportunity to exercise that muscle, to practice inclusive democracy, to practice um, getting on with and being around and interacting with other people, yeah. people different to us. It always surprised me when I looked at literature surrounding happiness, how it was those micro contacts that played such a large role in people's life. And I've known in my life, you don't realize how important they are until suddenly they're gone. And the small person you may have waved to, the small exchange, the nod, um, those were all really, really important things. And I'm so glad you touched on it. And it, it makes me wonder how we can how we can get better at this stuff. How do we look at solutions for getting out of this hole that we're in and um, kind of growing upon some of those concepts you just mentioned? Um, we built a lonely world, but it doesn't have to remain so. Um, ideas about what governments can do from um, investing, reinvesting in the infrastructure of community to um, right now allocating funds to address today's very acute loneliness crisis to even measures like an empty shops tax which is something being done in Belgium whereby um, landlords who leave shops empty um, are disincentivized from doing so hmm. because the longer they leave them empty the um, higher a tax is imposed. Um, so lots that governments can do, lots that businesses can do but also lots that we ourselves can do and I think that's really important to stress you know we can put down our phones more and be more present with each other that's relatively easy although we are addicted to mm -hmm. our devices um, we can think especially now when our local stores and cafes and yoga studios are really struggling how to help support them and where we can choose to support our local stores, our local um, cafes. Um, that's going to be really important, especially moving forward, given how on their knees they are. But we can also do something at a more micro level. We can think about whether there's anyone in our own networks who might be feeling lonely right now. And if there is, pick up the phone, give them a call, um, send them a text. If you can meet them for a socially distanced meetup, do so. Because just showing someone that you're thinking of them, that you care, that they're visible to you, can make a huge difference to how they feel. And you know what? It'll make you feel more connected too. Well, Narina Hertz, thank you so much for the time today. This has been a really fascinating conversation. I appreciate your insight. Thank you so much for having me on. Narina Hertz is an economist and the author of The Lonely Century, coming together in a world that's pulling apart. Still to come, the science behind human touch and what happens when you don't get enough of it. That's ahead on Life Examined. 
Introducing the KCRW Donation Car, designed to be recycled. This first-of-its-kind vehicle will save you time, space, and hassle by disappearing. Enjoy the luxury and comfort of turning your underused car into a donation worth hundreds, even thousands of dollars. The KCRW Donation Car, already in your garage, driveway, or on cinder blocks outside your house. Act now at kcrw.com cars. I'm Jonathan Bastian, back with Life Examined on KCRW. In the wake of the pandemic, there is much to be done to restore human connectivity. The warmth of a hug, the caress of hands and a kiss on the cheek, those simple expressions of care actually turn out to be physiologically beneficial to our health. Studies with premature babies and in Romanian orphanages show when babies are caressed, they flourish, but when they are touch deprived, both their physical and mental health is severely impaired. So why does touch deprivation impact so many young people today? And how do we deal with this during the isolation of a pandemic? Dr. Tiffany Field is the head of the Touch Research Institute at the University of Miami's Miller School of Medicine. She's also the author of the book called Touch. Dr. Fields, welcome to Life Examined. Thank you, Jonathan. You've had a very long and distinguished career looking at touch, but if you could try and summarize why you have been so fascinated by this research for so long, um, where, where does this begin for you? Well, it actually began when we were trying to research what we needed to do to help premature babies get out of the intensive care unit. Mm. Um, the important thing was for them to grow because that was a criterion for being discharged. So we started with giving them pacifiers to suck on because they were being tube fed. And we knew that as fetuses, they had a lot of experience sucking. And so now they were being robbed of this experience by being tube fed. So we gave them, we gave them these pacifiers to suck on and they gained weight. And so then we argued that if they can gain more weight by sucking on a pacifier, what if we stimulated the whole body instead of just the inside of the mouth? And that's when we started massaging them and they gained significantly more weight and they were discharged significantly early, like on average six days earlier hmm. at very significant hospital cost savings. And then the CEO of Johnson & Johnson at that time was very impressed by these data. And he, mm. he predicted that if we had more touch in the world, we'd have fewer wars and we'd have less illness, less disease. And so he gave us a quarter of a million dollars to start the Touch Research Institute. And so it sort of snowballed, and now we've done over 100 studies on various um, medical conditions, mostly right. with, with children. Yeah. What did you take away from that first really profound study that you told me about? Because it, it seems to suggest r something really important about the nature of touch. Well, it suggested to, to us that the important nature of touch was to help babies grow um, that was simply the message we took away from that. But um, we, we knew that the nervous system had been slowed in these babies so that they, they could have better uh, food absorption. Uh, and, and we started to look then at underlying mechanisms and found that, yes, the nervous system is slowed by a simple thing like touch and, and massage. And, and with that, there are all kinds of things. There's a whole pathway of what happens that helps our immune system, 
that uh, helps reduce our um, psychological problems and emotional problems, et cetera. So I don't know if you want to know what mechanism we discovered, but um, that it that research led us to exploring mechanisms. Yeah, can can you say a little bit more about the specifics of it and the and the greater impact on yeah, someone's I life? Yeah, I can. I can. So you you can measure physiology and you can measure biochemistry, and that's what we were doing to see what was going on under the skin. Because in our traditional medical community, in order to convince medical staff that this is important, you have to look at what's going on under the skin. So we measured heart rate and blood pressure and brain waves, and uh, we took saliva samples and urine samples and measured things like stress hormones and natural killer cells, which are uh, the front line of the immune system. And what, what we found basically is that when you move the skin, you are stimulating pressure receptors under the skin. And that sends messages to the brain, to, especially to the vagus nerve, which is the largest nerve in the brain. And that has many pathways throughout the body. So it slows down heart rate. It goes to the GI tract and helps you with, with your food absorption. Uh, it goes to the face and voice and helps you with expression, et cetera, et cetera. So basically it's slowing down the nervous system. And when that happens, it slows down the production of stress hormones. And the chief culprit stress hormone is cortisol. Mm. When you slow down cortisol, you save natural killer cells. And natural killer cells kill viral, bacterial, and cancer cells. So that's why they're very important to the immune system. Now, there are other things that happen along the way, like when you slow down cortisol, you save the production of serotonin, which is the brain's neurotransmitter that, that basically is antidepressant and an anti-pain neurotransmitter. So then this takes on all kinds of implications for you can reduce depression, you can reduce pain syndromes and so forth. And so then we started studying things like depression, pain syndromes, and immune problems. And our immune problem studies were mainly with HIV and with breast cancer. Mm. Um, so there are a, a lot of take-home messages from this, and um, that's how our research, sort of how it kept going. Yeah, yeah, no, it's, it's fascinating stuff. And the story that I was most acquainted with when I thought about touch was a very famous one, the Romanian orphanage study. And I was wondering, for those that are not familiar with it, it kind of gave us a glimpse into what could happen to somebody when they didn't get properly touched as, as a young child or as a baby. I was wondering if you could just tell us a little bit about that for those that have never heard of it. Yes, I actually visited Romanian orphanages, and I was shocked to see that the children were half their expected height, they were wow. developmentally delayed, and they exhibited many symptoms uh, of autism. Studies that have been done on those children have basically shown that if you foster them, if, if you send them to foster care, they will do better than they were doing in the orphanage. And hopefully those studies will continue and hopefully those children who were, were sent to foster care are going to continue to do better and hopefully they will find some way to foster care the children that are in orphanage they you can imagine if you're 
if, if 20 children are being raised by two caregivers, you can imagine that they're going to be touch deprived. The whole experience was very shocking. Uh, I, I don't know how else to describe it. it it's very, very sad. And um, hopefully those kinds of, you know, we call them experiments in nature right. because they just naturally happen. And that's the only way we can really study touch deprivation. Although, you know, we've been looking at that in COVID-19 um, mm. by a survey. And um, in the survey, 60% of people were reporting that they were feeling touch deprived. And it's interesting because only 20% were living alone. So at at, the, at least the other 40% of those feeling touch deprived were, were living with other people. And um, that has to make you wonder, so what are they doing? You know, you would think mm. that if they're living together like that, they're going to be, there's going to be more hugging and more back rubs and, and more kids jumping on your laps and right. so forth. But. Well, meanwhile, we do have this incredible experiment playing out in front of us, which is COVID and a year of lockdown. And I know this is something you've been following closely as well. Just out of curiosity, when this pandemic hit us and you saw that we were going to be isolated, did you as somebody who studies touch kind of think, oh, this is going to be interesting and, and potentially quite harmful? Well, yes, I, I have a group of students who were very much aware of all of the years of research on, on touch, and they, they were very curious. And so we put together this survey. And, uh, it, you know, the touch deprivation items were just among many other items, in addition to the figures I gave you, and 60% were touch deprived and only 20% were living alone, is that the touch deprivation was highly correlated, highly related to anxiety symptoms, to depression symptoms, to sleep problems, to PTSD symptoms, to boredom, to loneliness, Virtually every negative scale and rating that we had on this survey was related to touch deprivation. So that's very disconcerting because uh, you, of course, don't want people to be experiencing these psychological problems during a lockdown. Uh, and, you know, certainly that's that from our previous research suggests that their immune systems are going to be compromised. And at the very time when you need something like touch to keep your natural killer cells up to ward off the virus, you're seeing that there is this touch deprivation, which is going to hurt the immune function. That's really interesting. So the fact that we are being touched less makes us more susceptible to actually getting COVID-19. Yes, that's right. And uh, I don't believe that anybody's really studying that. There are somewhere around 58,000 published articles on COVID-19 and uh, they're virtually in, in the year 2019 and 2020 and now 2021, uh, there are no articles except our own about touch deprivation. Interesting. I mean, can you talk about um, how touch is impacting different segments of our population right now, from, from young people to the elderly who, who may be living alone? Yes, well, that was a surprise to us to find that the young people living alone were the most deprived mm. in, in terms of, of touching and in terms of uh, experiencing all these negative emotions. 
that was surprising to us. We expected that elderly living alone would be the most compromised. But when we tried to interpret the data, which is that the young and alone are experiencing the worst effects, um, we we just came up with a sort of, a, a, you know, down to earth kind of interpretation, which is, well, you know, young people are so much more accustomed to being touched both in, in public by their acquaintances and friends and um, perhaps in their romantic lives than the elderly who are often living alone and not used to having a lot of touch. Mm. And so that's how we interpreted those. And we basically interpreted that because we did a study once on uh, elderly people massaging infants and we found that the elderly people were pretty much touch deprived oftentimes because they were living alone and had lost their spouses. And when they massaged these infants, they experienced incredible significant changes in their stress hormones. And so we, we appreciated the fact that the elderly do need more touch, but they're accustomed to being less touched. So they express less touch deprivation. There was something about that image that you just said, or, or what a beautiful notion this is of the elderly, those that may be touch deprived, massaging infants. Something about that's very stirring to me. Yes, well, I think that there are places like assisted living places where they're trying to arrange the uh, preschool locations in the assisted living homes so that they can get these young kids together with elderly and have mm. the elderly have, you know, some very, very helpful function. Um, of course, that's been stalled now by, by COVID-19 and um, I'm not sure it will return, but it, it would be really nice to get these two extremes, you know, these two age extremes together and, and benefit from each other, the, the contact. A lot of these uh, elderly people are suffering from not being able to grandparent like they sure. usually are. Um, to be separated, some grandparents haven't seen their grandchildren ever because mm. they've been born during the pandemic uh, or because lockdown occurred yeah. uh, soon after they were born. So. I feel particularly bad for them that way. And um, I, I tell them that the saving, the saving activity, the buffering activity during this survey turned out to be exercise. And when you think about it, all you need to do is walk around the room and you're stimulating pressure receptors in your feet. And that, that can lead to, to uh, some compensating effects for having less touch. Mm. So I tell them, you know, be sure to walk around and, and um, be, be more active um, because that will help compensate for the touch deprivation. Something that I think that's been interesting culturally is how it seems that we are becoming almost anti-touch, um, that there's just a lot of policies in schools where just, you know, and for good reason, and I understand why philosophically and ethically, but, but it seems like more and more I'm picking up on this idea that we kind of stay in our own bubbles anyway, even outside of a pandemic. Do you think that's true? Well, definitely it's true. The The mandate against touching happened almost 20 years ago. Uh, public schools were mandated by the National Education Association to uh, have teachers no longer touching children. And the idea was to prevent 
uh, child abuse. Sure. But in, instead, child abuse has increased, not decreased. And so kids are, are you know, being deprived of touch at school. And that's a very major problem. And we know from previous research that we've done that preschool age kids and adolescents who are touched less are more physically and verbally aggressive towards their peers. We did this study comparing kids in Paris with kids in Miami. And the kids in Paris were engaged in a lot more physical interaction and, uh, you know, hugging each other and giving each other back rubs. And they were less physically and emotionally aggressive. The, the other thing that we noticed before COVID was we were doing a study in uh, departure gates and airports all, all over the world, but mostly in the U.S. and uh, some in Europe and some in Asia. And we were very surprised. We were planning and, and we were trying to do uh, observations of social interactions. Mm. And we found that only 4% of the time were people touching each other. And 60% of the time they were on their iPhones or their, mm. their cell phones, mostly texting. Uh, second, secondarily, they were scrolling. They weren't talking on their cell phones. So that was a bit shocking to us. Wow. And, and this is um, people who are traveling together with, with partners or with uh, families. So, so this has been going on for a long time. And I think that COVID-19 has just exacerbated that, that. If anything, COVID-19 might be making people aware that they're missing touch. And hopefully when they, they're be, being able to touch each other more often, they will do that. But I suspect that those 40% who are living with people and expressing touch deprivation are basically on social media a lot. Does it help to do things like like hug ourselves? I mean, there's also these funny things out there like rent-a-hugs and, yes. <laughs> and self-massage. I mean, right, do, you, right. do you like those things? Yes, very definitely. In fact, in, in most of our studies, we've taught people how to self-massage. Mm. You know, think about if you have lower back pain, you, you, you want to go there and rub that. Uh, and so we've taught people along the way. And, you know, it doesn't take uh, rocket science to to know that, you know, if you need some part of your body massaged, it's good to do it to yourself when you can't get it from anybody else. And so, yes, self-massage, self-hugging are all very important. Professor Tiffany Field at the University of Miami, thank you so much for this conversation. Really enjoyed it. Yeah, thank you. I enjoyed it too. Well, that's all for today. The producer of Life Examined is Andrea Brody. You can listen to this and other episodes on your favorite podcasting app. And while you're there, leave us a review. Tell us what you think. You can also email me your feedback directly at jonathan.bastian at kcrw.org. To learn more about our guests and this topic, check out our webpage. That's kcrw.com slash lifeexamined. I'm Jonathan Bastian. Thanks again for joining us. We'll see you next week.